Let's pray, ladies. I am so thankful um, for my sister, for Jane. Uh, Lord, she is um, she has dug deep into your word. She's prayed over um, her lesson today. And she's done the hard work, Lord. I thank you that you've walked with her through this. And the spirit of the Lord is upon her. I am so thankful for that. Lord, help her to be able to um, feel your spirit, sense your spirit, and be able to proclaim good news to us, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft, that are ready uh, to accept uh, this good, good word. In the name of Jesus, amen. morning sisters it's good to be with you this morning especially since we have really dense passage to go through together um and i just to remind you put a couple of technical term definitions on the whiteboard up here because i'm going to be using them Uh, but my task today was made a lot easier because of the teaching you, the good teaching you've already heard from chapters one to from uh, from chapter one to uh, chapter four twelve. Now, um, Joy mentioned two weeks ago, if you remember that far back, um, Joy Kerr mentioned that Paul is constructing his case right now, like the rabbi he is. He is going to give you a very rabbinical argument here, very tight arguments that center on the interpretation of Old Testament scriptures, which is why the people who put together your booklet have you dive into Genesis so often so you can understand the basics of Paul's arguments, which were kind of second nature to him. You know, I couldn't help wondering when I was making, when I was writing this talk, I couldn't help wondering if the Gentile Christians in Rome were uh, slightly baffled or at least had to do as much homework as we have to do because their conception of divinity is so different from the Jews that they were partner with um, in the house churches. Gentiles have no scripture, the the pagan Romans, that is the Gentiles, had no scripture to refer to. Their society was a lot like ours with people believing all kinds of things about their gods about life after death, about how to live a moral life. Paul's type of argument for them then would have been quite new. But as any good teacher, Paul expects them to catch up and become as familiar with the Old Testament that he is familiar with as the Jewish Christians in their midst. Perhaps this was Paul's very subtle way of making close ties Um, among the Gentile and Jewish members of the congregations in Rome, and also to drive home his points, because I can't help but think that Gentiles would have had to turn to their Jewish counterparts and say, can you explain this to me? (laughs) Um, The Jewish Christians also are hearing very difficult teachings from Paul that is difficult because they have been taught one way all their life, and Paul's coming along and saying, "Uh uh-uh. And they now have to teach the Gentiles what Paul is saying. And as any teacher can tell you, the best way to learn something is to have to teach it. 
So we're going to begin in the middle of a very intense conversation in verse 13. I'll begin with a recap. Paul has argued that justification, becoming just as if I'd never sinned, justification comes by faith given from God, not from any works that you are doing if you have, we are following Jewish law. Number two, no one can be justified by saying that they followed the law. Neither Jew nor Gentiles could say that. No one could be justified by doing the law. Number three, nor is circumcision any way to be called righteous. That is being able to stand in God's presence without spot or stain, as the older hymns say. Now, Abraham was called righteous before he was circumcised and before God had given the law proving that we can only become righteous that we can only become righteous after having been given faith by God to believe that he will justify us and make us righteous um this is a, a wonderful circle that leads me to praise God in for his love for me because he's willing to do everything to make sure that I have a relationship with him now Paul is going to end his argument with another tightly then what that's a, the verses that we're going to go through today he's ending his argument with another tightly knit piece of evidence that proves that we can only be justified through faith not anything that we do abraham will be paul's proof that justification is by faith and not by works and you'll notice abraham when he is declared righteous is technically a gentile because he was not circumcised, nor did he have a set of laws to follow. So technically he's a Gentile. <laughs> I, know he's, I know he's a father, um, but he's, he is uh, when, when God declares him righteous. So we'll begin with how we are called righteous. And this is verses um, 13 to 15. And I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation because <laughs> I thought this was a lot clearer than in the other translation I was using. It begins clearly, um, but, but the Greek word here is really strong. It's kind of like Paul going, obviously. God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship that with God that comes by faith. Or as the ESV says, through righteousness by faith. Now, I'll remind you that from your reading of Genesis 17 um, in, in the booklet that you had, that technically, again, um, Abraham was given the land of Canaan and was told that all the nations of the world would be blessed by Abraham's relationship with God, that is, through his descendants. Um, but Paul's going to connect the two and say, well, Abraham's heirs are, are going to inhabit all the inherited world. So that's what he's saying. Uh, uh, technically, Abraham wasn't given the entire inhabited world. But uh, but Paul says, look, that's why I'm the point. That, I'm, I, that's not my point. I'm, I'm just saying that all the believers will inhabit, uh, will inherit the inhabited world. Um, he wants, because Paul wants to concentrate on the promise that God made to Abraham and how Abraham obtained that promise. 
Now, this is a promise that God made to Abraham with no prerequisites, no previous conditions, no requirements made of Abraham. And in fact, Jesus tells us when he's talking to the Jews when he was walking on earth, Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad in John 8, 56. So he, so Jesus is saying that Abraham understood what this promise was about. It was about um, uh, being saved through faith. So Paul is going to address who now are the heirs of this promise. Uh, although the argument actually becomes so convoluted and, and actually difficult in verses um, 14 through 18, that you're a very um, understated British commentator, John Stott, says, the grammatical construction possesses a tenuous coherence at best. <laughs> so bear with me as I work uh, with you to figure out what Paul means. And I'm going to start again from the New Living Translation. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is having no law to break. So what Paul seems to be saying is that the covenant that was made with Abraham was made before the law was handed down, but the law didn't invalidate or didn't replace the covenant that was made with Abraham. It was still faith in believing God that makes the covenant. If we argue that God's covenant was only made for those who lived under the law, that is, we would only be heirs if we were obedient followers of the law, then the whole idea of faith is empty. There's no need for faith. But God never conflates faith and law, and neither should we. The law can only tell us where we fall short. At least that's our translator's best idea of what Paul means in the phrase in verse 15. Now, I don't, I, I'm not throwing shade on translators. What I'm, uh, what I'm saying is that I think Paul got very wrapped up in his argument. And I, I, I'm pitying the scribe who's trying to write this down while he's saying all this. Um, and the translators have made the sense that they have made out of it after a great deal of thought and prayer and consultation with other very thoughtful Christians. So I, I don't, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't trust your translations. It's, you, you should, but just be aware that there may be some kind of subtle differences. Um, so Paul is not saying the person who is ignorant of the law is not guilty of breaking it. Um, and we're getting into some, again, some very legal rabbinical terms here. The, his word for breaking the law is best translated as transgression. That's a word that means um, someone has uh, deliberately gone over the line. That is, you've deliberately done something that you know you should not be doing. Knowing the law uh, that forbids the act makes us doubly guilty. That is, you're guilty because you have done something wrong, and you're doubly guilty because you knew it was wrong, but you did it anyway. Um, and I, and if you have kids or have interacted with children, you know exactly what this is. <laughs> so you're guilty of the act, and you're guilty of knowing what you did was against God's law. 
So verse 16 uh, literally reads in the Greek, therefore by faith in order that according to grace. <laughs> we can see the translator's problem here. Paul is clearly so wrapped up in his argument that the, the um, translators had to figure out, in fact, a subject and a verb for this sentence. So the New Living Translation renders it, so the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are all certain to receive it, whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, or if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. So if our inheritance depends on us performing the law, and I'm thinking here of another place um, in uh, the New Testament where Paul is writing and he says, I have been blameless in keeping the law. I'm, and so I'm, I'm going to go along. You know, let's say there is somebody like that. Um, then our promise no longer depends our, excuse me, our inheritance no longer depends on the promise made to Abraham. The law and the promise made to Abraham exclude each other, since the law tells us not only that we sin, but that we also transgress when we sin. And it's that transgression that provokes God's wrath. From that, for that point, um, you can remember the story of Abraham, uh, excuse me, uh, Adam and Eve, who were told not to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge but they deliberately chose to act the opposite way they were told. So they transgressed as well as sinned. They, they sinned by eating, but they also transgressed by actually reaching out and, gra and grabbing the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. God intervenes, however, to declare Abraham righteous because of his faith in God. So God is restoring the promise of Eden for those who are declared righteous through their faith in him, not through anything they've done. Salvation comes from God's grace alone and is the only possible human response is to accept that fact by faith. But it also means salvation is guaranteed because it relies on God's promises, not on our obedience, nor on the law or on any moral code. So, and, and here's where I'm, beginning to see those knitted eyebrows. <laughs> keep, keep with me here. Um, verses 13 through 16 are actually parallel to, uh, to verses 4 and 5. So Paul is kind of uh, putting parentheses um, around his argument. God's law demands obedience from us, but we consciously turn away from that, the obedience, and therefore, thereby become objects of God's wrath. God steps in with his promise of grace to put our relationship right with him. When we believe that God is willing to do that, we receive his blessing and we can enter into his presence. Now, so far, Paul has been using, has been arguing using examples from history and his rather formidable logic to prove his point, but he's been doing it using a lot of negatives, which is kind of interesting. Abraham was not justified by works, nor was he justified by circumcision, nor was he justified by the law. He's, it, Paul is going to turn now to the positives, the theology of unity, stressing the importance of the Jews and the Christians living as one body, as God had already hinted at in his promise to Abraham. It's the example 
of the faith of Abraham that draws together both the Jew and the Gentile, anyone, draws together anyone who is a believer. So Paul is going to stress Abraham is the father, the father of all believers, not just the Jews. So let's let's go back to Paul's words again in from the New Living Translation, verses 17 through 19. That is what the scriptures mean when Paul told him, told Abraham, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God, who brings the dead back to life and creates new things out of nothing. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. So it's so interesting here that Abraham's faith is considered reasonable and rational. That is because he believes in a God, the God who made the covenant, the God who is unchanging. And as I said, this is very, this would have been um, something that the Jews would have had to explain to the Gentile Christians because it, the Gentiles, the pagan Romans' beliefs about their gods were very, very different. Uh, their gods are very fickle. And I'm going to give you an example. Uh, Polybius, who's uh, Greek, uh, who's been captured by the Romans, he's writing in the first century BCE to explain the Romans to the Greeks, but he's very much in and part of this pagan culture that worships many gods. So he's going to explain about the goddess Fortuna, and you can see what English word we've gotten from her name. If you take into account not an endless expense of time or even many generations, you should be able to understand from them the harshness of the goddess Fortuna. For do you think that the Persians or the king of Persians or the Macedonians or the king of the Macedonians, even if the gods had prophesied a few, the future for them, that is, if another god had said to the king of the Macedonians, this is what's going to happen to you, they would have even believed that the very name of the Persians would have vanished utterly. Those who they were masters of the whole world, and the Macedonians, whose name was scarcely uh, was scarcely known earlier, would now rule over all. That is, even if another god had prophesied, you Persians are going to reign for forever. Fortuna could step in and make that ha not happen. Just absolutely not. Um, but since this is the case, it seems to me now that Fortuna, who makes no treaties with this human life of ours, who devises all kinds of new twists to confound our calculations, and who shows her power in completely unexpected ways, is demonstrating to all men, but settling on the Macedonians, the prosperity that once belonged to the Persians, that she has merely lent them these blessings until such times as she decides to do something else with them. How would you like to worship a God like that that you couldn't even predict? The reason why Paul thinks that Abraham's faith was reasonable was because God has shown himself to be faithful, unlike Fortuna, where they never knew where she was going to turn. He would give a son to Abraham and Sarah, even when their bodies were long past the age of childbearing. By God keeping his promises, we begin to understand God's power. And we begin to understand the fact that we can rely on him to fulfill everything that he has promised. 
Paul here is very subtly note, noting Paul's uh, God's power over death and his ability to create all things. God brings resurrection to Sarah and Abraham's bodies, even though they were long past the age of childbearing, in the very act of creation, the creation of Isaac in the womb of Sarah. Tim Keller notes that these verses help us understand that there is a reality that's bigger than we are. The pagan Romans grasped that there was a higher power than they were, but they did not understand the rational mind of the creator God behind our reality. Paul is reminding us that there is a rationality into the other world, to the, uh, yeah, to the other world. There's, there's another reality, even if we can't see it right now. Abraham had to wait many years for this reality to show itself. Abraham's reality in the earthly world was his old age and the old age of his wife. But the, I don't, what do you want to call it? The real reality was that God had promised a child to Abraham and Sarah, and they believed that child would exist. As Keller says, faith is a kind of death to self-trust. So let's finish up Paul's argument here. Um, in verses 20, uh, 20 through 22, Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. So Paul is asserting in verses 20 and 21 that Abraham was not a mindless moron, I don't know if you've ever heard those two words together in a Bible study, but you did now. <laughs> but Abraham assessed the facts and acted upon them. How can Paul say that Abraham was constant in his faith? We have stories in Genesis that show that he wasn't always acting as if God would take care of him and his household, um, or that God would provide the heir through Sarah. Uh, just remember the story about the firstborn son, Ishmael. Abraham wasn't perfect, but at crucial moments, he reacts to the circumstances of his life after serious thought about who God was. And this is the only way to explain why he took his son Isaac to Mount Moriah to sacrifice. He knew God would provide the sacrifice, but he also knew that Isaac was the promised son. So Abraham knew and acted upon his knowledge of God as a powerful creator, able to create life from death. And as a result, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, just to reiterate, Abraham trusted God, even against the evidence of his feelings, against the opinion of the people around him. We know, for instance, at least Sarah laughed at the idea of her becoming a mother or even what you might call common sense. Instead, Abraham looked to the reality of knowing God's power to accomplish what he had promised. Paul is reminding his readers, which include us, that our faith comes from a powerful, consistent God, not anything around us, including ourselves. So Paul gives us a reason why he's been arguing this very, very compact argument about faith and righteousness in verses 23 through 25. 
when God counted him as righteous, that is Abraham, counted Abraham as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. So the good news is that God offers salvation to everyone if we follow the example of Abraham and believe God's promises. If we do, God will credit us with righteousness, just as he did with Abraham. Now, we have much more evidence about God's power and God's constancy than Abraham did because Jesus's life and uh, life, death, and resurrection were accomplished through the power of God the Father after he had promised us someone to put us right with himself. The, this promise is available whether you had previously followed the law or you'd never followed the law. So there's, there is application in this passage. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to pick up with um, Tim Keller's suggestions. Uh, I'd make two points. The first one is we can use this passage in Romans to reflect and meditate on God's nature. So we can know God as intimately as Abraham did and learn to trust him as deeply as Abraham did. We can do this by reading our Bibles, by focusing on the facts that we learn in our Bibles about God. Faith is not about the absence of thought. It's not about blind acceptance of something, but it, it comes from thinking about who God is and what he's capable of doing, given his past actions on our behalf. Number two, part of this faith is believing God when our present reality doesn't seem to be matching up to his promises. When you don't see how God is working out his promises in your life, it's worth remembering there's another reality beyond the one that we see, we hear, or we feel. Clearly, the disciples, when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross and felt despair at his death, were experiencing the reality that Jesus was dying. What they were not experiencing was the reality that Jesus was dying for their sins in order to make it possible for them to have a right relationship with God. They were overwhelmed by the reality in front of them, the reality that they could see, the reality they could feel, the reality they could hear. And they were uh, at that point, they were so overwhelmed by that reality that they were not thinking about the real reality, the reason. For us, it's remembering that God loves you. He loves you as an individual, and he knows exactly what you need. God wants you to have that kind of deep relationship with him that Abraham had. Paul wants you to have the kind of deep relationship with God that Abraham had. And so Paul argues that nothing will make this relationship happen except believing and acting on the promises that God has already made. As Tim Keller says, faith is living as if these promises are true. So let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you that you have given us such a rich and a varied way to know about you and to hear about your promises in the Bible. We hear everything about stories about Abraham. We hear songs of praise. And then we hear these tightly woven theological arguments from Paul. All these different ways of knowing who you are. Give us a desire to spend time in your word and meditate on your goodness. And as we spend time in meditation, Holy Spirit, we pray you'll quicken our hearts in love and in faith so we may act as daughters of the King and as citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Amen.